Section 10 of The End of the Middle Age, 1273 to 1453 by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5. Rise of the Swiss Republic, Part 2. Such success was almost unprecedented at that time, and it is no wonder that stories and traditions have gathered round this birth of Swiss liberty. There were certain to be recollections of Habsburg oppression, of cruel bailiffs, and of peasant heroism. The slow striving for liberty has been converted in the stories into a sudden rising and one heroic effort, and these stories have centered round the deed of William Tell, a deed which can be found repeated in the folklore of many northern countries, Iceland, Norway, Denmark, and even England, where the ballad of William of Cloudsley recounts an almost similar event. It was more than a century and a half after Morgarten that the Tell legend first appeared in a collection of documents known as the White Book, and the later chronicler copied it with the addition of such exact details, dates, and names that it was long looked on as an accepted fact. The story runs that Gesler, the bailiff of Albert of Austria and a monster of wickedness, set his hat on a pole at Uri that all passers-by might do reverence to it. Tell, who refused, was brought before him and ordered as a punishment to shoot an apple from the head of his own child. This he did successfully, but Gesler insisted on knowing why he had placed a second arrow in his quiver and promised him his life if he would answer. Tell replied that if he had shot his child he would have slain with the second arrow the bailiff himself. Despite his promise, Gesler bound Tell and took him over the lake of Lucerne to leave him in a place where, as he said, he should never see sun or moon again. But the rock is still shown as the Tell's Plata, whence the prisoner leaped out and made his escape. Later he revenged himself by shooting Gesler in the Hola Gasse at Küsnacht and became the founder of the Federation. There are other legends connected with the resistance of the Swiss which have rather more foundation in fact. The secret conspiracy of Stalfacher, Fürst, Zufrauen, and Melstall, their meetings at the Rütli, the storming of the castle of Zarnen, and many others although probably much embroidered and placed by the chroniclers at too late a date, are not wholly impossible and concern people who really existed. It is the story of Tell, however, which has most fired the popular imagination and has been so long bound up with the growth of Swiss independence that he is likely to retain his place as national hero, despite the cold light of historical criticism. After the Battle of Morgarten, the Confederation gained new members one by one. Lucerne was the first to join in 1330, the Allies agreeing to make no new arrangements without the consent of the whole body. Various attempts were made to break this connection, and within Lucerne itself a conspiracy arose to crush out the patriotic party. There is a story of a boy who unwittingly became acquainted with the plot and was only given his life, on condition that he told no man what he had heard, who revealed it without breaking his promise. In the butcher's guild house he found various patriots assembled, and going in he sat by the stove and began to talk to it. Oh, stove, stove, may I speak? 
The men laughed at him and thought him mad, but he went on with his tale. Oh, stove, stove, I must make my complaint to thee, since I may speak to no man. Tonight there are men gathered under the great vault at the corner who are going to commit murder. The alarm was thus given, the conspirators were seized, and the patriotic party was successfully established. Zurich was the next to join the League, but she was not at first a very certain ally and was inclined to play too much for her own hand. She was one of the imperial cities, free therefore from control of count or bailiff, and with the management of her own government, which was however distinctly oligarchical. The old burghers, as they were called, the upper classes, excluding artisans and laborers, alone had political rights in the early fourteenth century, and a council, entirely recruited from their ranks, awarded all places and obtained all powers. Considerable discontent was caused by the despotism of this ruling body, and the more democratic party found a leader in Rudolf Brun, himself an aristocrat, but a man of great ambition, who was ready to win himself a name at the head of a popular movement. Brun was recognized as burgomaster, guilds were instituted into which all classes were admitted, and rich and poor were alike given political votes. The constitution was, however, far from being democratic, for the burgomaster was almost a dictator. But the revolution raised opponents to the town among the partisans of Austria to whom the old burgher party turned for help, and in self-defense Zurich joined the League of Uri, Schwitz, Unterwalden, and Lucerne in 1351. There were fatal defects in this new alliance, for thanks no doubt to Brunn, the different parties reserved to themselves the right of making independent alliances, and also the four original members pledged themselves to support the existing government of Zurich if need should arise. The danger of such stipulations was seen in 1354, when Zurich was besieged by the Emperor Charles IV, and Brunn saved the situation by hoisting the imperial flag and declaring that the town had always been loyal to the empire. Eventually he went so far as to make a treaty of alliance with Austria herself. It was not till after Brunn's death in 1360 that Zurich was really loyal to the Confederation and could be reckoned as heart and soul with the Party of Independence. In 1352, Glarus and Zug formed the sixth and seventh members of the League, and in 1353 the adhesion of Bern completed the famous Confederation of the Eight Old Cantons. Bern had been recognized as an imperial city by Rudolf in 1274, elected her own officers, had her own mint and market, and had been granted various privileges, such as exemption from any military service which would involve inability to return home the following night. But though privileged, her government was on the whole aristocratic and military. Bern had already joined the forest states in 1323 and won a victory with them. But the definite alliance was not made till 1353, after which time she formed a strong and much-needed bulwark on the west. Now it was that the true war of liberation began. The mountaineers were born soldiers, 
and success developed in them a still more warlike spirit. In 1375, their victories over a mixed body of French and English mercenaries, led by the Lord of Coucy, helped to increase their self-confidence and ardor for battle. The invaders were called Englishmen by the peasants, or Gugler, from the cowls, Kugelhutte, which many of them wore. A hillock at Butterholz, where they were repulsed, is still called the Englishman's Hill. The chief work of the Confederates, however, was still against the House of Habsburg, and it was during this struggle that they advanced so much in unity and national policy. In 1386, Leopold of Habsburg collected a large army of nobles and mercenaries from Germany, Italy, and France, with which he felt confident of crushing once and for all the insolent peasants. His plan was to march upon Lucerne as the center of the Confederation, and in the hot summer month of July, his main force rode round the shore of the little lake of Zempach, situated in undulating country about ten miles to the north of Lucerne. Here followed the battle which completed the work begun at Morgarten and gave real security to Swiss independence, the Battle of Zempach, 1386. A band of Confederates concealed in a forest awaited the enemy, and Leopold fell into the ambush, with the result that he faced his foes on an uneven plateau quite unsuited for cavalry fighting. The Austrians dismounted and prepared to fight on foot, armed with the long spears they were accustomed to wield on horseback. The Swiss formed in their wedge-shaped column and armed with halberds and short weapons were wholly unable at first to make any impression on the enemy as they could not reach them to strike a single blow. The nobles seemed sure of victory when the tide of battle was turned as by a miracle. Arnold van Winkelried, so the story runs, rushed upon the serried rank of spears, seized all he could reach, and turned them into his own body, formed a gap through which his fellows could enter. Once at close quarters they were able to do deadly execution with their shorter weapons. In a hand-to-hand -hand encounter the knights were nowhere. They could scarcely move their long lances. They were almost cooked with the hot sun streaming on their heavy armor, and were totally unable to cope with the quick movements of the active and light-armed mountaineers. In vain, Leopold, enraged at the ill success of his army, plunged with reckless courage into the thickest of the fight. His fall was the signal for a general retreat. In desperate confusion, knights and squires turned to fly, but overweighted as they were and unable to reach their horses, few escaped. The Confederates fell on their knees to thank God for a victory as complete as has ever been won by any army, the news of which spread like wildfire over Europe, and all men marveled at the defeat of such a force of chivalry. The struggle was not yet over. There was a truce for the time followed by another victory for the peasants at Naples, 1388, where the men of Glarus, imitating the tactics of Morgarten, flung down stones on the advancing horsemen and then routed them with a charge down the steep hillside. Every year a pilgrimage is made to Naples and to the eleven stones, which are said to mark the place where eleven times the Austrians rallied in a vain attempt to stem the victorious onslaught. 
peace followed in 1389, by which the Duke of Austria gave up all his feudal claims over Lucerne, Glarus, and Zug. In 1393 the Confederates bound themselves once more together by what was known as the Convention of Zempach, and the Habsburg Dukes, despairing at last of the destruction of the League, signed a peace which was renewed in 1412 and which was the practical recognition of the Swiss Republic. The Confederation thus formed was of a very peculiar character and by no means very definitely organized. Indeed, it seems extraordinary that it should have held together at all, considering the great differences which existed between the various states, and considering also that even their territory did not form one continuous whole. Uri, Schwitz, Unterwalden, and Glarus, the four forest cantons, were rural communities of the purest and most typical kind. The government was in the hands of the sovereign people, who met in open-air assemblies to arrange all matters of importance, and on smaller affairs delegated their powers to an elective council. In the cities, on the contrary, the chief authority was exercised by the magistrates. Zurich was becoming more and more democratic, the burgomasters of whom there were two being elected every half-year. But Bern was distinctly aristocratic, with a council of twelve chosen exclusively from the upper classes. Lucerne and Zug were something between the two. Not only were the elements of the confederation thus diverse, but there was no real central organization to keep them together. No regular diet existed for the whole, although representatives from some of the states may have met occasionally for common business. The leagues which united them were very varied, and did not always comprise all the eight members of the Confederacy. The chief bond of union was common hostility to the Austrian Habsburgs and common connection with the forest states, the heart and soul of the Federation. The documents known as the Priests' Charter and the Convention of Zempach were regulations binding upon the whole body, the former chiefly to secure the national character of the clergy, the latter a military constitution containing rules as to discipline and management of future wars. That such a confederation should have proved enduring, that it should have acquired such great military power in the succeeding period, reflects the greatest credit upon its members and upon their growing sense of nationality and patriotism. End of section 10.